Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 163, Tin Man. Welcome in to Mission, to Mission Log. To Mission Log, right? A, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Right. I'm Ken Ken Ray. Ray. Yes, yes. And, and I'm John Champion. Right. Each week, now, I'm no just... doubt you'll you'll want to tell people that each week on the show we watch an episode of Star Trek, examining it for deeper meanings we might apply to our lives and our world today, and seeing whether each episode holds up as time goes on. It's like you read my mind, man. Now, in a moment, you're doing trivia. Am I? But before that, we want to let people listening know how they can get in touch with us. Wait, there are people listening. I I didn't sense any of them. Well, they're not doing it right now. But when they are. Uh, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can. Give us a call, 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And our show website, including discovered documents and all kinds of fun stuff, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please... Do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log, though I feel certain, after what we've already heard, there will be no surprise to the trivia master, Mr. John Champion. Can today's episode, Ten Man, is rife with trivia. It was written by Dennis Putnam Bailey and David Bischoff. Well, uh, kind of. Okay, it's, it's credited to those two because David Bischoff wrote the original story, Ten Woodman, that appeared in 1976 in Amazing Stories magazine. That story was retooled a little into a novel two years later with help from David Russell Bailey, and that won a Nebula Award. Now, finally, that story was turned into a script completely on spec for Next Generation. Lisa Putnam... Uh, helped out with that. She contributed dialogue, but because of the way union rules work with credits for worked at the time, only two names could be given on the episode. So Dennis Russell Bailey changed his middle name on the TV credit to Putnam to acknowledge her contribution. Ah. Yeah. Now, the episode was directed by Robert Shear. We've talked about his next-gen work, Like the Measure of a Man, and many more. Um, in this episode, we get to see one of those cool Excelsior-class ships again, this time as the Hood. And <laughs> Let me ask a question. Is the model yeah. for the Excelsior ship one of the most undersung supporting actors? Because it plays like so many different things. I hear that Brent Spiner has played more different characters on Next Gen <laughs> than anybody else. I'm guessing the model of the Excelsior... The, the model of the Excelsior is sort of like the James Doohan of the uh, animated oh, series. Of the animated series, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just popping in whenever you need anything else. If they had to pay that model royalties, they could have gone broke. Yeah. <laughs> so they have to have it play like five ships per episode to make it worth it. Right, right. Now, it's a nice looking model. <laughs> It's a nice looking model, um, and they could keep reusing that footage. But it, it is interesting to think that it would have been like an 80 year old ship by the time these stories take place, which, you know, you know it's okay. It's a starship can last a long time. Um, we have another new ship here, the, the titular character of Ten Man. Now, some say it was inspired by a peach pit, and uh, it is known uh, specifically that there are many Buckaroo Banzai fans on the staff at NextGen, so there was some inspiration drawn from there as well. Oh, and uh, the sounds that ship is making. It is a well-known bit of trivia that a sound recordist hooked up mics to a stagehand 
while he was eating and uh, recorded the gurgling of his stomach. That was uh, while the stagehand was eating pizza, apparently. I'm so glad I didn't know that before I watched this episode. <laughs> and now it changes the whole thing for you. Um, we also get the reuse of a special effect here. The weapon emitted by Tin Man is actually from V'ger in Star Trek motion picture and overlaid with an exploding Romulan warbird. Not the greatest effect in the world, maybe, but it works for that particular scene. Let's talk very quickly about guest stars. We have Michael Kavanaugh as DeSoto, very recognizable in tough authority roles. You may have seen him on 24, maybe the new Dark Shadows series, TJ Hooker, Kojak, and every other cop show ever made. We also have Peter Voigt as Romulan commander. Not as many credits as the others, but some TV appearances, including Lewis and Clark, Cheers, L.A. Law, and more. He'll be back for Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And finally, Harry Grainer as Tam Elburn. Now, Harry was born in Germany, and he's had an extensive career in theater, nominated for three Tony Awards. He even played King Arthur in Spamalot. TV credits include Buffy, Third Rock from the Sun, Mad About You, and many more. He will also show up in two more Trek series before we're done with him. Mo, oh, wait a minute. You're leaving out, like, two really cool things. Okay. What do you like? Well, I mean, first of all, just to say that he was in Buffy. Mm-hmm. Come yeah. on, dude. He was in Buffy. Yeah, he was, in, a- he was in Buffy. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, in yes. case you were wondering. He was the mayor of Sunnydale. He mm-hmm. actually uh, worked in cahoots with, um, oh, Faith. Mm-hmm. who, who yeah. was played by um, Eliza Dushko, who, of course, went on to reprise that character in Angel. And yes, I'm, I'm really into the Whedonverse. But there's another, there's another uh, Star <laughs> Trek tie-in here. So, so uh, Grainer played some character, I can't remember his name, on a show called Dear John. And it's a great oh, yeah, character yeah. because it's like, John, right? yeah, it's like this totally like, you know, nebbishy, weak, kind of like very nervous character. Mm-hmm. Uh, the John in Dear John was Judd Hirsch, Right. Who, of course, was made famous uh, in Taxi, uh, where he starred with Christopher Lloyd, mm-hmm. who, of course, was in Star Trek III. Uh, and it feels like that just I'm obliged to end that with Kevin Bacon. I, I was about <laughs> to ask how you're going to tie that into Kevin Bacon. That, <laughs> well, that seems I, like the whole point. That I cannot do. But I, I, I love Grainer and, and I felt like, uh, you know, I, I had to like sort of weave in another Star Trek thing. I, I guess his being in Star Trek should be enough. That, yeah, but yeah. but I thought another tie-in, you know, taking it back, yeah. uh, old school or original series, whichever one you want OS to stand for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I enjoyed seeing him again. Like a Betazoid born reading minds, you already know what is going to happen next, and there is no stopping it. Prologue. Prepare for science stuff. Uh, but wait, we'll have to postpone science for a rendezvous with the USS Hood. Captain Picard accepts a hail from the amiable Captain DeSoto, who says the Enterprise has new orders, something to do with Romulans in the area, but they will be briefed when they take delivery of the mission specialist Tam Elbrun. Wait, the Tam Elbrun? Riker doesn't seem too happy about that. Dana knows a little more. Tam Elbrun was on Beta Z when she was studying psychology. He was a patient. Act one. Here's the problem with Tam Elbrin. He has really amazing skills as a telepath, but unlike other Betazoids, he had the powers since he was a little child. It was terrible and out of control for him, which makes his personality a bit of a challenge. 
Also, he was involved in a previous disastrous Starfleet mission, the Gerushtan battle, in which 47, 47 people died, including two of Riker's classmates. On the upside, he's kind of an expert when it comes to contacting and communicating with unknown aliens. Tam beams in to greet the crew, and Picard begins with the usual, Welcome aboard the Enterprise, I'm Captain Jean-Luc Picard, but Tam Elbrin is already like, I knew that. What, what makes you think I didn't know that? Is it me or is it him? It's, it's him, right? <clears throat> he passes along the mission briefing, then greets Deanna. When Data says hello, Tam is taken aback. He can't get a read on the android. This presents a puzzling, intriguing challenge. Before Picard can give the order to Riker to call the staff to a meeting go over the mission, Tam has already beat him to the punch with something like, I knew you were about to have a meeting. Why wouldn't you think I knew that? Isn't it funny to think that I wouldn't know that? At the briefing, the mission is explained. The Enterprise is to go to the Beta Stromgren, not a Bond villain, system, where it will find something quite remarkable. Around a dying star is a living starship, a completely unknown being in orbit around the sun. Starfleet has codenamed that alien ship Tin Man. It's cool, but it wouldn't be such a big deal if the Romulans weren't hot on their heels to get there too. They've dispatched two ships to try to catch up to the Enterprise. Tam is to work with Data on how they will contact Tin Man, but Riker has his doubts about the man who played a role in the death of his friends. Tam heard that, or sensed it rather, and leaves. Act 2. On the way to meet the Tin Man, Picard is trying to get a sense of Tam. Dr. Crusher says he's a prodigy, and Deanna confirms that his gifts are unique. The stress of hearing so many outside thoughts in his head is what drove Tam to repeated hospitalization and treatment. In his professional life, he tends to take on challenges no one else will or can. On the bridge, Wesley detects an object on their same path traveling at warp speed. Could be a Romulan, though they're not doing a very good job of staying cloaked if that's what it is. Deanna drops by Tam's quarters for a chat. He's having a difficult time, not lonely since his head is filled with every thought of everyone on board the Enterprise, but still filled with conflict over what happened at Gerushtan. He's anxious to get to Ten Man, a creature so ancient, so complex, and so lonely. Then Deanna gets it, but somehow Tam is in mental touch with Ten Man. He is feeling what the alien is going through. A sensor probe shows Ten Man still in orbit of that distant star. Just as Tam makes it to the bridge, the Romulan vessel that has been trailing the Enterprise makes itself known. Act 3. Well, hello, Romulan warbird. A few shots later, the Enterprise has suffered some damage while the Romulans zip away to Ten Man. This was the plan all along. That ship was there to stall the Enterprise while another one, a bit behind, is on its way to collect the scout. With the Enterprise somewhat disabled, Geordi LaForge makes desperate and dangerous attempts to get the engines up and running enough to beat the Romulans to ten men. Tam is deeply worried, but Picard is playing it cool. If the Romulans make it there first, so be it. He's more concerned about collecting information and making the right move next. Data has his own computer terminal in his quarters, and Tam watches him work. They discuss the nature of ten men. It is an entity bred or evolved as a vessel for a crew of carbon-based life forms. Data finds that kind of purpose intriguing, while Tam wonders if living beings must have a purpose at all. The Romulan vessel, meanwhile, has approached Tin Man and is preparing to use its disruptor weapons. Their orders, as interpreted by Tam, are to destroy the alien if they can't secure it. 
and Picard starts to open a channel. Tam breaks in by telepathically communicating with Tin Man, warning it about the Romulans. Tin Man must have heard, because the vessel turns around, a swell of energy emits from its hull, and a massive shockwave destroys the Romulan ship and nearly takes out the Enterprise along with it. Act 4. Things are not looking good for the Enterprise. Shields are down, the computer is down, there's barely any impulse power. Geordi is giving her all she's got, or something like that. But it's not enough when we're dealing with a star about to go supernova, an unknown alien entity, and more Romulans who will show up any time now. There's also no love lost between Riker and Tam, whom Riker is kind of blaming for the predicament they're in now. Tam is in sickbay where Dr. Crusher is giving him a look. He's okay, just stressed out. Picard wants to know what Tam knows, and he spills a little more. Tin Man is called Gomtu and has been roaming the universe for thousands of years. It has been in sporadic communication with Tam, sharing mental images, nothing terribly specific. And Gamtu is alone. There are no more of its kind anywhere. Gamtu has come to this place to die. It knows the star will go supernova, and it can't stand the feeling of having lost its crew long ago. Tam is feeling all of this as Tin Man, Gamtu, feels it. The only way he can get any further information or help from Tin Man is to be in close physical contact. Tam will have to go aboard, as that is the only way to complete their mission. Before we can let all of this sink in, another Romulan vessel is detected, and remember that the Enterprise is still a sitting duck. Picard confers with Deanna. She suggests that if Tam beams over to Gomtu, they may lose him altogether. His intentions are good, but his judgment is terrible. Data volunteers himself, since he and Tam have formed a kind of bond. They could both beam aboard Ten Man. When the Romulan ship decloaks, Picard tries to play it cool. Oh, you know, we're just out here being science-y, doing science things. You want to join us for a little science? The Romulan commander is having none of it. They know about the other ship of theirs and about Ten Man. This is now a mission of vengeance to destroy Ten Man, and if they have to, the Enterprise as well. Act 5. Picard's hand is now forced. He allows Tam, Elbren, and Data to beam over to Tin Man to do... something. Anything, really, since now its life and the fate of the Enterprise is at stake. On board Tin Man, Tam and Data find a curious biological ship. But Tam finds he is mentally connected to Gomtu. It is filling Tam's mind with its history so they can better understand each other. Wandering the soft, pulsing corridors... They make their way to what is essentially the bridge, where Ten Man's crew died long ago. The crew and the ship live symbiotically, and Tam explains that when they died, the ship no longer had anyone to care for, no purpose in its life. Tam can understand. He needs purpose, too, and now he feels that Ten Man can offer it. He will stay on board. Uh, wondering how those Romulans are doing? Well, weapons charged, threats levied toward Picard and the Enterprise. Same old, same old. Tam, meanwhile, is explaining his experience to Data. They will care for each other. Tam gives Tin Man purpose, and Tin Man is the only being in communication with Tam. The other voices are shut out, giving Tam some peace for once. He is where he belongs. As the star gets nearer to supernova, Tin Man lets loose another volley of extraordinary energy, throwing the Enterprise and the Romulan ship far away. A moment later, the star explodes. Before Picard can ask what happened to Data, the android appears on the bridge. How? We're not sure. Later, 
Data explains to Deanna that Tam wanted to stay with Tin Man. It was there he felt at home, like he belonged, and the two lonely creatures found comfort in each other. The grief had turned into joy. He wanted Deanna to understand that, and Data, too, said he understood that about returning to the Enterprise. That is where he belonged. The end. What was the name of the character that we left with, um, oh, on the Corbin Knight maneuver, on Baylock? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was the name of the character that we left with Baylock? Oh, uh, uh, Ensign, uh, Ensign Bad Attitude. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't Ramirez, was it? No. Okay. No. I can't remember what his name uh, was, but I, I yeah. couldn't help but remember how you and I were like, yeah, I wonder if we should check back on these two in a couple weeks. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and the same thing with yeah. Tim Elbron. I understand that right now he's thinking, ah, this is great. You know, like two weeks from now, is Tim going to be like, yeah, I heard that story. <laughs> two weeks ago in the meantime you know Tin Man's going you never pick up your socks what's the deal you have one pair of socks you seriously came with one pair of socks and yet I find them everywhere that oh I, man I'm it would be saying, like the new odd couple like the new new the new, new, new odd, odd couple. couple although it's the 24th century so gosh there have probably been like eight more reboots of that since then because if there's one thing TV loves right it's trying to start the odd couple again <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it, it just occurred to me. It's like, oh, this seems great, you know, now. Maybe maybe the Enterprise could fly alongside for like a week or two and go, still good? All right, well then, <laughs> we're, really, we're really leaving this time. Okay, bye. If there's something to fly along next to, see, here's the thing. I, I feel like it's just enough ambiguous an ending mm-hmm. that we really don't know where they are or what they are. Mm-hmm. We know that, that the Enterprise and the Romulan ship got kicked away, and we know that the star went supernova, and that's all we know. Except didn't we hear Data beam aboard after the star went supernova? Because the star we goes supernova, a- and then uh, Picard says, Data. And then yeah. um, then we hear like whatever noise, like like something there's beaming a aboard. Yep. There's an off-screen whoosh. Yep. Yeah. And then there's Data. Mm-hmm. You thinking maybe he started beaming him out before the star went supernova and it just took that long? Well, they were three billion kilometers away. Yeah, that's true. It's a long beam. <laughs> it's, it's, a long, it's a long beam. Long. Yeah. I got to figure, though, that, you know, if he's saving data, unless what Tim Oberyn really wanted to do was die. But I don't think that's what he wanted. I think, well, we could discuss this forever. You're right. He may have exploded. They may have both exploded. There may be yeah. nothing. <laughs> they, may, <laughs> right. they may be wiping right. bits of them off the uh, hull of the Enterprise for years right. to come. Right. Yeah. All right. Yeah, you never know. Let's talk about somebody who lived. You, you're, you're a fan of Captain Desoto. I am a fan of Captain Desoto. He, I, first of all, I love that he calls the Enterprise a luxury liner. Yeah. Um, just because I've always said it was, you know, the Hilton in space. Um, but, but I like him as a character. He is so at home. He is so at ease. And it reminded me of Gary Mitchell, if we're going to reference the original series. These guys is kind of lounging back in that chair. And he's just been out there forever and ever. He knows everybody. He's just kind of great. We get such a tiny little bit of him in the show. Yeah. Um, but I think he's cool. He is awfully cool. He's pretty cool. Although he, I mean, he has... Where he's not Gary Mitchell is he apparently has a very lackluster job, or at mm-hmm. least that's what he mm-hmm. tells people. He's like, yeah, I go from uh, Starbase 1 to Starbase 2, <laughs> back to Starbase 1. Yeah. And then it's a quick trip to Starbase 2. Right. <laughs> hey, but remember, it, it was Starbase 1, 2, 3. That's true. In this one, the data. Wow. That's, yeah, really? <laughs> off, you, off. you couldn't throw in another Starbase 47? Because why oh, not? Nice. Yeah, now it's maybe Starbase 5, 6, 7, 8. 
might be kind of fun. Hey, I like how Picard, listen, no man is going to tell Picard his fate. No. Right? (laughs) So Tim Elbring comes on, he's like, oh, by the way, get that up there because your captain's going to want a briefing in 10 minutes. And Picard's like, "Eh, tell him, by the way, I want a briefing in 15 minutes Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. up yours, telepath. (laughs) Nobody's going to tell my fortune but me. That, that could have the whole episode could have been like, oh, here, let me introduce you to. Oh, you can introduce me to uh, Data now. N- no, <laughs> I'm going to introduce you to the transporter chief. <laughs> exactly. This is O'Brien, who's not here right now, but we're yeah. on our way to get him. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a funny idea. Um, some good lines in this episode. Uh, Worf, Worf just taking a shot at the Romulans. The Romulans claim all that is in their field of vision. <laughs> they just don't even care. If they can see it, they'll take it. Yeah, that was kind of good. Although, as we've seen so far, the Romulans, again, again, it's these guys who show up, and they, they're going to rattle their swords. We're, we're going to fight. We're going to take you out so hard. And, and then they don't. Like they, they shoot a little bit and then they go away or they get blown up by something else. Right. Act three, we're going to kill you. Act four, we're seriously going to kill you. Act five. Yeah. All right. Seriously, this time we're really going to kill you. Uh, oops. We got knocked away by the alien entity. But and, next time we'll right. be back. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Picard. Picard. Being first at any cost is not always the point. Uh, okay. I mean, uh, except for when you have to, like when you're trying to save the alien entity from the bad guys who would blow it up. Um, that well, would be a good time to be first. They didn't know at the time that that's what was going to happen, though. I mean, it's only well, as it goes it that we find that out. Yeah. I mean, it, it's weird to me, actually, that Tam Melbourne thinks, no, we have to be there first because the, the Vulcans, I mean, the, the Vulcans, the Romulans may have something to offer that we don't. And I'm thinking, well, d- does he know nothing about Vulcan culture or Romulan? Why do I keep saying Vulcan? <laughs> Does he know nothing about Romulan culture? Does he know nothing about, you know, uh, Starfleet or, or, or Federation? Or does he know nothing about um, Gamtu at that point? Mm-hmm. Because there's really nothing to indicate that, I mean, unless it's just, hey, we want to offload all of our crew onto you, Ten Man. I mean, maybe yeah. it would have been enough. Maybe if they had offered him like 50 Romulans, mm-hmm. then he would have yeah. been like, oh, okay, sweet. I got right. something to do now. <laughs> right, right. I don't know. That would have been interesting. You know, obviously at the end of our show, as we always do, we'll kind of get to our overall assessment. Does it work? Does it hold up? Blah, blah, blah. But uh, there was one thing that I, I kind of wanted to bring up to you early because I, I wanted to know if this struck you as well. I, I feel like so far in all the episodes that we've talked about, we haven't had a lot of techno babble, And that's something that Star Trek sometimes gets criticized for. Like, oh, they, they don't know a thing, so they tech the tech and then they fixed it and then they solved it. And I feel like in this episode, there's a lot of breaking up scenes with techno babble. Yeah, you know, you're cooking along with the with the A story, and then you just jump over. And then there's Jordy yelling, "No, change the inverter to the you know cross circuit A to cross circuit B." You know. Yeah, it didn't quite. I mean, the thing is, it didn't it didn't destroy the flow, but it also didn't really aid anything except for filling time. Like when Riker's right, down there right. and says, "So fix." things and George is like right right. right. first thing I need to fix is our computer and Riker's like no other thing fix oh right I should probably actually fix our shields because there's another Romulan coming and then you tell somebody what to do and then that person stands there and pushes a button and Jordy's like oh no that's not going to work we'll have to do it manually which I'm guessing is going to look a lot like that guy standing there pushing a button again right manually doesn't quite mean manually in the 24th (laughs) century I don't think but yeah there was a whole lot of like yes as you say tech the tech we have to tech the tech and sort of like 
Yeah, that that's I, I, I tried to figure out, hey, is that is that scene important? No. Well maybe I missed something, so watch me the second time. <laughs> yeah, watch it again. Still yeah. no. Third time. Yeah. Uh, where's the fast forward button? Yeah, I feel like this is one of those times where the pillar uh, no, uh yeah, pillar filler. We needed pillar filler. Because as we talked about before, a pillar filler was there to pad a scene or to, to pad a story if they had to reach their time limit, you know, mm-hmm. their time quota. But inevitably it turned out to be something great. You know, it turned out to be a really terrific character moment. And I feel like there's a lot of great character stuff going on here, but it, it just sort of um, the the pacing gets thrown off when you have those uh, those moments you need to fast forward through. If the eyes are the window to the soul, Tam Albrin is very, 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 very deep and a bit dark. We've talked before about what tools these mortals be. Admirals and Commodores especially. Yeah. And while she's not nearly as disruptive, it's you know, no picnic for any member of the crew when Waxana Troy comes aboard. <laughs> so the fact that Tim Elbrun uh, should be a bit of a disruption and rub Riker the wrong way is not really a surprise. What was surprising is how like, openly and completely dismissive and hostile Riker was. Mm. Basically bad-mouthing Elbrun to Geordi. Just out loud. Like, here I am, second in command. We got this guy on board who we're supposed to be following, right? Uh, but let me tell you, he's a jerk. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I thought that Riker's uh, treatment of him to other people especially, and to Tam Elbrun himself, although against Elbrun it's kind of unfair because Riker's, Riker is not saying a word. He's not hiding anything on his face, but mm. he's not saying a word. But the problem is you don't have to say a word around Tam Elbrun. Yeah. You do have to say a word around Geordi, though, and Riker has no shortage of words to say against Sam Elbrun. It's a few clicks down from insubordination, I think, but it's not really in the spirit of being a good little Starfleet officer, is it? No, I mean, uh, Picard is a guy who is so diplomatic mm-hmm. that he, he can kind of uh, hide maybe what he really wants to say, and he would certainly never say anything about uh, visiting officer or consultant in this case, certainly not a dignitary to anybody else. And maybe discretion being the better part of Valor, Riker could have said like, oh, you don't know who uh, Tam Elbrun is? Go uh, go read the records about him if you're that interested. Um, but yeah, walking down a hall telling Jordy, you know, uh, two of my friends died because of him. Right. And, but, then, but then he kind of walks it back a little bit. He says, well, it wasn't totally his fault, but I still hate him. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much what it, what it came to. It was, it was, um, it was surprising. And, and I guess maybe, it's, maybe you need to heighten whatever. I mean, I'm reminded of what you have said in the past about the, the Romulans. I, I don't know that the Romulans were only here to fill time. Uh, certainly, I don't know where this episode would have gone without them, and yet it's completely unnecessary that they're there. I mean, they are only there to heighten, yeah. um, heighten the uh, heighten the tension. Right. I would say we need Riker to be a jerk in this episode. Yeah. In the past, Riker, I could easily hear Riker saying something like, "Let's just say I'm not altogether comfortable." I mean, I mean, Riker. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of gumbification with Riker here. I think he he can be more. Um, Hmm. More diplomatic than he is, uh, than he's certainly being in this episode, it seems. So let's put it this way. I mean, uh, Deanna's reaction and her approach is way more reasonable because it's it's so much more multifaceted to say, 
look, here's the problem with Tam. It, you know, even to Picard, you know, as soon as Tam beams aboard, Picard is being rubbed the wrong way by this guy. Yeah. But Deanna is the one who jumps in even preemptively and says, okay, here's what's unique about this guy. Here's what you need to know. And even after the fact, she consults him a couple of times to say, yes, he is abrasive. <laughs> yes, he's, he, he is all of these things that you're feeling right now. Um, and that doesn't negate or, or excuse his bad behavior. But here's where that's coming from. And here, here's how you have to understand uh, his, his position on things. Riker just doesn't even care. Well, and, and, you know, <laughs> Not that he has to, well, Not that well, he has to. right on the flip side of that, you would think that Tam Elbrin somewhere along the way would have learned to not be quite a, quite as abrasive an individual as he chooses to be. Um, I was reminded of a line from one of my favorite exchanges in broadcast news, actually. You, did you, you've seen that movie, right? I love that movie. Yeah. Yeah. When Holly Hunter is, is telling like the head of the network, I think, or the head of the news department anyway, how something has to go. And she's a producer on, she's a segment producer, I believe. Yeah. So she's like so many steps down from the head of the news department. Yeah. But she's telling him exactly how something has to go. And he says something to the effect of, it must be great knowing that you're the smartest person in every room. And she looks back at him and very earnestly says, it's terrible. <laughs> and the thing is, I think that's actually Tam Elbrin's problem. I mean, everywhere he goes, he does know everything that everybody's going to say. And I understand how that could drive a baby insane and how that could drive a three-year-old insane and a five-year-old insane. But he's in his, what, 30s, would sure. you say? Okay, yeah. so, so yeah, his, yeah. by the time he's in his 30s, you would think at some point he would have learned to maybe curb his tongue just a bit. Even if he's bored out of his skull the whole time, personally, I would just go ahead and opt for going mad. But <laughs> having chosen to not do that, you would think he would also let Captain Picard say little things like, I'm Captain Picard. Right, right, right. Well, so here's the thing that I kept thinking about this character, because after watching it a few times, you know, we'll, we'll talk about what we ultimately thought of the episode, but I kept going back and forth on what I thought were the strengths and weaknesses of this character of uh, Tam. And forgive me, by the way, there's a really good restaurant out here called the Tam O'Shanter. So every time I think of the name Tam, I'm thinking about that restaurant. So if I say Tam O'Shanter, I actually mean Tam Elbrun. Okay. Uh, but if but if you're in Los Angeles, go to Tam O'Shanter. It's great. Um, <laughs> so, are we getting paid, paid for that? that? Okay, we're no, okay. Go, no, no. Um, Play it for them next time you're in, though, and see what they say. Yeah, sure, sure. I kept thinking that this character would have been really interesting to explore him deeply in a novel. You know, where you've got a lot of room and you, you've you can get into a lot more depth than you would in a 45 minute TV episode. So Tam has this burden. Uh, of hearing the thoughts of everyone around him all the time. And, and it's worse than Deanna or her mother. It, his is intense, and it's been there since childhood, since since he was a baby. We've talked about this before, before on the show, how um, one of the interesting things about the, the human brain is that it's designed to forget. You know, it's designed to allow you to shut things out. And that, that's kind of a cool thing. And we've adapted to have that because we need it. <laughs> we would go crazy if we didn't have that. It would be torture if we remembered everything that happened to us or we heard everything. It, it would be even worse. Just imagine this. If we knew the underlying thought or emotion under every interaction we ever had. That may be fine for some alien species in Star Trek where those aliens actually say what they mean 
<laughs> but we know that humans don't. So yeah. this must be incredibly frustrating for him. And along the lines of what you're saying about Tam, hopefully having learned to not be as abrasive, I, I thought of it this way. I, I thought about Tam being born different. So he has this power that to humans is already different enough. Mm-hmm. But even to other Betazoids is very different. And, and I thought what an interesting trait for him to have. So he's abrasive and prickly, but it doesn't just stop there the way that we have other characters who show up. You have a Commodore that shows up, and like you said, they are tools or fools. Um, but, but you know, we, we greet them for a moment, and then, then they kind of go away, you know. I kept thinking that with Tam, the interesting idea is that the, the complicating factor is that he's behaving the way that he expects others think about him. And I thought that was the most interesting part because y- you can really apply that to, to anybody, to yourself or to anybody that you encounter. The more you think about the psychology of what makes somebody up, it, it may be an internal trait, it may be an external trait, but we behave and we perceive other people based on the traits that they show us. You know, so even if you just encounter somebody who who maybe their personality is very introverted, um, very shy, very cautious, you then treat that person differently from the way that you would treat a person who's very extroverted, very outgoing and, and maybe very physical and kind of, you know, in your face. Just just a simple thing like eye contact. If you meet one person who doesn't make eye contact, you and another person who does looks you dead in the eye and 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 really engages you when they're talking. So everything that you do then on the other end of that is then affecting what that other person does to you as well. You see where I'm going with this? So the idea that Tam is constantly bombarded with all of this information from other people, he then essentially acts the way that he thinks that other people think about him. And it's this ongoing cycle. It's this ongoing psychology that you could say – well, maybe he should just stop being a jerk. Maybe he should just let Captain Picard finish his thought, mm-hmm. finish his introduction. But I kept thinking, man, that this is the the really troubled psychology of who he is, that, that maybe he can't. Maybe it's like, uh, it, well, you know, mentioned Holly Hunter and, and her, her line, you know, it's terrible, knowing you're the smartest person in every room. Tam is essentially like an adult in a room full of, you know, kindergartners. <laughs> you know, he he already knows everything. He already knows every thought, every feeling, and and what they should be doing or what they're about to do. I don't know that it plays out necessarily as deeply and as complexly as it should here, but I found myself having much more sympathy for him toward the end than I did at the beginning. And, and not just because of what was going on between him and Tin Man, but just the idea of how he has to interact with other human beings. I, I guess I would I would take issue with a couple of things that you said, though. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one thing that you said, he's not an adult in a room full of kindergartners. He's just somebody who can't not hear everybody at a party. Mm-hmm. I mean, because an adult in a room full of kindergartners, hopefully, if you got the right adult anyway, is going to be significantly smarter than everyone else in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and Tam is not necessarily. I mean, witness the fact that he thinks it's more important to get to Tin Man first than to get to Tin Man well, right? 
Mm-hmm. Tin Man Well, by the way. Tin Man Well. <laughs> it, was, uh, yeah, it was a different. Uh, it was a different show. Yeah. Um, to get to Tin Man first, rather than to get to Tin Man properly. Mm-hmm. So I don't. So I mean, that's that's the one thing I would say. I mean, certainly he is being bombarded constantly. What's weird though is that he has not learned social graces, and yet he seems to uh, admire. Uh, social graces more than uh, just about anyone uh, witnessed the fact that he is talking about the wasn't the Garushtans, uh, Chandrans. The Chandrans are wonderful people. Their minds are glacial. They have a three-day ritual for saying hello. Mm-hmm. And yet when Data is doing his presentation and is taking a tiny bit too long to get to something that Tam thought was important. <laughs> and, and and by the way, both of them, I mean, Picard's upset that, that Tam left out uh, the Romulans. So did Data. Mm-hmm. Tam's like, uh, Data, why do you waste time? Just go straight to the important stuff. And the important stuff, as far as he's concerned, is whatever's going on with Gamtu, except we don't know his name is Gamtu at that point. In the meantime, Picard says, uh, it seems like we might be worried about Romulans here. And then, and then uh, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, Romulans, right. Data, tell him. Okay, well, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but let's get mad at this guy. It's just kind of interesting to me that, that he seems to, he seems to like a certain amount of mindfulness and yet doesn't really uh, practice it that much on his own. The difficulty, though, with Tam and Tin Man is that Tam, from the beginning, is emotionally invested in Tin Man. Mm -hmm. That's the complicating factor here that's so interesting. Yeah, he's fed up with data, not because... I, I. I don't think it's because he doesn't understand that there is a protocol to their meeting, but he's emotionally invested in this. I mean, more so than he has been in anything. This is the most profound mind mm. that he has reached or has been reached by ever. So I can forgive him a little bit for jumping the gun there. It was still Data's responsibility to explain, hey, Romulans. Right. <laughs> you know. That would be um, Right. Which Picard yeah. never brings that up with Data at all. He brings up a Tam a couple of times. Like, wow, you don't think that was an important thing to tell me? Right. <laughs> right. 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 You didn't ask Data. Oh, Data. Come on. <laughs> right. right. I got every episode to deal with him. You I got for 48 minutes and we're out. Um, I did love what was going on between Data and Tam. Yeah. Um, must living beings have a purpose or do we exist for no reason but to exist? All right. Well, first of all, James T. Kirk would have had him in an airlock <laughs> in a heartbeat for asking that question. Uh, I do like the fact, though, that Tam actually uh, lets Data in a couple of times on the fact that, it, you know, it's it's cool to be different. Asking him that question, do we have to have a purpose or do we exist for no better reason but to exist? Um, also, uh, when Data says, me and Gamtu got something now, I'm going to hang out with him and he's going to take care of me. Because when he had nobody to take care of, he had no purpose. And Data says, is that the purpose of existence, to care for someone? And Tam says, it is for me. And I like the fact that he says, it is for me, as opposed to saying, yes, or yes, of course. And depending on which show you're watching, you might have gotten that answer. Original series, you might have gotten that answer. Seventh Heaven, you're definitely getting the answer. Or Touched (laughs) by an Angel, you're definitely getting that answer. I like the fact that, you know, Data is looking for ultimate answer. Always, yeah. Data is looking for ultimate answer. And everybody's willing to say, you're on the track to ultimate answer. And Tam may be one of the only characters who's come along in Next Gen so far to say to Data, dude, there's just answers. There's there's not even necessarily an ultimate answer. Th- this is the right answer for me. For you? No. Yeah. I mean, it, what's right for some isn't necessarily right for everyone. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be different. This actually seems to be something that Tam is telling Data throughout. And I find that kind of, uh, kind of, find kind of interesting. I love it. I I, uh, I would stop short of calling it 
the struggle, <laughs> the, the perpetual struggle, but the journey. Certainly, Tam uh, advocates for the idea that uh, that the journey is more important than the destination. In that case, well, if you're if you're <laughs> no, if you're applying TOS talk to it, I mean, he might just as easily be saying, "Dude, go on the journey if you want to. Sit and watch other people journey if you want to." I mean, he actually okay. seems to be yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when he says, "Is it not enough that people just exist?" Mm-hmm. I mean, that 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 basically is. That's not arguing against. Is sort of uh, the, the Kirkian method, let's say. But it's not <laughs> right. saying, well, that has to be the way. You don't have to know what you're going for. You just have to go for something. I don't hear Tam Elburn saying that. Yeah. Um, I also found it interesting uh, that they're talking about uh, data. Data is saying, you can't read my mind. Because Tam lays out for data what he thinks data is like. And, mm-hmm. and apparently he hits so close to whatever passes for a nerve in an Android that data says, uh, you said earlier you couldn't read my mind. And Tam said, eh, I can't. But I think I understand a bit about you. And he lays out some more about data for him. He says, it worries you that I can't read your mind. Data says, perhaps there's nothing to read, nothing more than mechanisms and algorithmic responses. And um, I like the fact that Tam says, eh, perhaps you're just different. It's not mm-hmm. a sin, you know, though others may have, though you may have heard otherwise. Mm-hmm. I mean, and again, that's sort of the same thing I was talking about a moment ago. But I love the fact that that is said two or three times uh, through this episode, I'm, I'm I'm sorry that Tam stopped just short of saying, and what makes your thought process different from mine? But, you know, <laughs> right. that's expecting quite a bit from – there was a lot of technobabble that had to get in. Plus, Romulans aren't going to shoot themselves out of the sky. Yeah. But yeah. No, but those little moments of, of existential discussion, I thought, were, were pretty great. Yeah. They were pretty, pretty thoughtful. Let's talk a little bit. I'm going to shift gears and talk about Tin Man itself, himself, herself, itself, um, Gum 2. Yes. Uh, it's just a fascinating idea for a vessel, um, particularly because with the Enterprise, in our estimation, doing this show – already has some level of sentience, you know, um, with that computer running everything. Yeah, but we, 90, we don't, 96% of everything. We don't talk about that. We don't. Yeah, <laughs> She doesn't like it when we say that. <laughs> um, but uh, so here's Tom to an evolved being that acts as a ship for humanoids as well, just like the Enterprise. There's just a great, you know, we go back to that conversation between Tam and Data about purpose in life and and Data being intrigued that Tin Man has purpose, whether it was bred for that or evolved for that purpose of carrying a crew. And uh, and that's that moment you said that, you know, Tam asks if, if life must have a, a purpose at all. And Data says he's unqualified to answer the question that I thought was interesting as well. I think Data is selling himself a little short. Um but Gomtu, I thought of well, I, I thought of two things. But the first thing I thought of was Devil in the Dark. Hmm. I thought the Gomtu is like a Horda, alone, misunderstood completely and utterly by everything and everyone around it, um, and extremely powerful, <laughs> as we saw here. You know, Horda the the Horda was dangerous because we provoke the Horda to be dangerous. Gamtu is dangerous because we or the Romulans, Romulans in particular here, provoked Gamtu to be dangerous. Um, but like the Horda, Gamtu is sort of like run out of options and and profoundly sad at, at uh, where its life has taken it to this point. Now, the other thing that I thought about was V'ger. And not just because we stole a special effect from Star Trek motion picture. <laughs> but thematically, I thought about Star Trek motion picture. But I think I want to save that for our wrap-up at the end and why why I thought about feature. Okay. Um, 
yeah, but but Devil in the Dark was something that definitely uh, stood with me because this was a creature that needed to be understood. We didn't have the language to understand it. We had to have the guy who had the language to understand it. So not unlike Spock doing a mind meld, here was Tam doing a mind meld with this creature to understand it. Hmm. That's interesting. That's interesting. I didn't I didn't make that. You know, mm-hmm. You're you're right. I'm sorry. When 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 Tam says I I, I got to be close to it. Yeah. I can actually get in contact with this thing to get in contact with this thing. That is totally uh, that is totally the Spock thing. I think I missed it, though, because there wasn't really the argument in the original series. I'm sorry, in the motion picture. Mm-hmm. Spock just snuck out and did it. Yeah, right. So I didn't draw the right. correct correlation. And that makes me feel like an idiot. Uh, um, <laughs> never. Never. <laughs> oh, plenty of times. But if it's you want to say. what we do is a discussion. All right. Good point. Not a good right point. or wrong. All right. <laughs> well, okay. You're wrong. Uh, here's a question I have. Okay. Why uh, would Come to be called Tin Man? I'm so glad you asked because I, think, I kept going back and forth on this. I think the name makes some sense for Data at the end, but I don't know why Starfleet would have called Gom to Tin Man, unless we're supposed to draw that correlation. Mm. Um, Data says, when Tin Man returned me to the Enterprise, I realized that that is where I belong, um, which, which makes Data sort of a Tin Man analog, I think, although I'm trying to figure out if he's more Tin Man or Dorothy in this. Now, you couldn't really call the episode Dorothy, nor could you. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. Nor, I mean, but, but the Tin Man thing is just so on the nose for Data if it's going to be about Data. Um, it's interesting that you saw Spock in Tam. Mm-hmm. I saw uh, more of a Spock element here from Data, in a way. Mm. Um, Spock would have been more than fine on Omicron City 3. Mm-hmm. He was happy there. Um, we argued that Spock would have been fine being a brain in a jar in Spock's brain as well. Mm-hmm. And you and I argued that he would have been fine being the 50-foot Vulcan in the Infinite Vulcan, I think. Mm-hmm. It's 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 Kirk in Spock's brain and in the Infinite Vulcan who was not fine with that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and on Omicron City 3, now I think about it. So really, <laughs> Kirk is Kirk is the foil for, uh, for, uh, for Spock's uh, living into his fullness, grokking sure. the full Spock, if you will. Right. Um, it's really not until halfway through Star Trek The Motion Picture or maybe Wrath of Khan that Spock finally seems content, perhaps even happy with the fact that his place is with Kirk and McCoy and the rest of the crew on the Enterprise. And you might even not say with the rest of the crew on the Enterprise, you might just say with, with Kirk and McCoy. Because the end of Star Trek Three, of course, the Enterprise has been blown up. Spock's there. He's relearning. He's redoing. He goes and he joins his crew in Star Trek Four to go back and face what happened. And there's no Enterprise there. So it's not that the Enterprise is home necessarily. It's that those people are his home, right? Mm -hmm. And that seems to be what happens with Data here. He finally, after two and a half seasons, two and two-thirds seasons of of trying to understand and trying to grow and trying to learn, something that we assume has been going on for the full 26 years that he's been awake, or 28 years now. Right. He he finally gets it. It's in seeing the joining between Tam and um, and, and Gamtu that he understands that this is where he belongs. Now, I feel certain we're still going to hear the, all the you know whining and all that stuff about not having emotions and not knowing his place and whatever. It's interesting that we actually do get that moment here. And, and it's even acknowledged by Troy. Like, you, you have had a breakthrough. She doesn't say you've had a breakthrough, but she says, you do understand. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah I totally get it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we'll see if he still gets it next week or the week after. Um, the one thing I kept wondering was as for whether he is Tin Man or Dorothy. Dorothy was the one who thought that she had to be someplace else. Though it was the Tin Man who thought that he had no feelings or emotions. He was always mm-hmm. pining for a heart that it turns out he had the whole time. 
Um, so with this realization, is Data uh, Tin Man or Dorothy, or is he either? Is Tin Man actually Gamtu and I'm missing that somehow, or is he one of those two? You know what? It's interesting that you are fixated on Data for that, because I was thinking of the Tin Man as Tam. Because Tam is the guy who shows up who is a total jerk. Tam is the guy who says early on, I'm not a nice person. Mm-hmm. Well, he says, you know, you know, he's saying it defensively. Yeah, he acknowledges it, to her, though, that that's crap. I mean, he says, yeah, well, he says, I'm scared. Yeah. You know, but but he's a guy, our friend Will Wheaton, he's a guy who said that he had to figure out how to how to human. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Tam is a guy who has to figure out how to human, even though he's not a human, we would be holding him to an unfair standard. But he is a guy who has to figure out how to human. And it's only at the end of the episode when he has this breakthrough this this moment with gamtu and realizes that they they are better off when they share their minds he earns his heart you know mm. he he earns his heart at the end of the episode by doing that he's happy he's the one who who gets to go on with that and then does something by i, I imagine through gamtu's powers sends data back to the bridge of the enterprise so i kept thinking of tam as the tin man See, that's interesting. I, w- I would argue it has to be data only because, mm. and I don't like it. It's always been, we've talked about it a million times. It's one of the things that bothers me about the message of the Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. at least the movie, not the book. The, movie, the message in the movie is you've already got what you're looking for. You just need to realize it. Mm-hmm. And data is always looking for something that at the end of this episode, he realizes he has, in fact, always had. It's just now he knows that that's the thing he's been looking for. It's been right under his nose the whole time. Tam actually has to go someplace else. He has to meet a completely different individual, a completely different individual who, by the way, can set up a a barrier around itself so that nothing penetrates, right? Mm -hmm. Tam actually has to find something completely new. Data, Dorothy, the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, the Scarecrow, has to realize, oh, man, you know what? I was smart the whole time. Oh, I was home the whole time. Oh, Mm -hmm. I had emotions Mm -hmm. for these people the whole time. And, and now I finally get that. And then, so that's why I think he's one of those characters. I'm just not sure if he's Tin Man or Dorothy. With Tam Albrin and Gom2 crossing the universe together, or dead maybe, it is time to see what we can take from Tin Man. If you notice, by the way, John, you you and I both did a funny thing. Well, we, we hoped funny anyway on the last mm-hmm. couple of episodes where we said that the next week's episode was going to be Tin Man. Oh, it was hilarious. I love yeah, that joke. Hilarious. Uh-huh. But did you notice that uh, that uh, that Patrick Stewart had sort of a weird... <laughs> it was sort of like Tin Man. Yes, it was. It was, it was, it was, yeah. a, it was a strange emphasis. But <laughs> we've now reached the part of the show where we talk about Tin Man, or however you want to say it. Uh, let's start with the whole holding up thing. Does this episode hold up in your estimation, Mr. Champion? I think this episode has a lot going for it. It, it feels like old school science fiction. It feels like TOS and, you know, for good reason, because it's, it's an old school science fiction story. <laughs> and we talked about the, the development of who wrote it and what it was written for. And this is one of those rare moments where you have novelist sci-fi writers doing a script for Star Trek. That is what the old days on TOS were like. And Tam is a really interesting character. 
And like I said before, he might be better explored in a novel just because you could go even deeper into his psychology. And, and what I think is the interesting part of him just being completely consumed by this defense mechanism of how he behaves around other people. I, I thought that was a, a really interesting thing to have, not just say, here's a character and he's a jerk and then on with the story. Mm. But I feel like all of that gets sidetracked. Um, we wait until the last moment to get to 10 men and we eat up a lot of time with Romulans and, and the, the techno babble, et cetera. It feels like it doesn't totally come together, but the premise is interesting enough for me to give it a pass and, and say that it holds up as an episode. The pacing is weird. We talked about that before. I wanted to mention that in the, the observations that we had. And also, I didn't mention that this episode is the first TNG episode to feature music by Jay Chataway. This was his first job doing Trek music. And, and I don't think the music is bad at all, but I feel like it's edited strangely. It punctuates the scenes at the wrong times. So I feel like there are buildups and then drops, you know, total drop-offs with the music that kind of hurt the pacing a bit. Mm. So there are all these weird things production-wise that I think hurt it. But like I said, in the end, I think it's interesting enough. And I was more interested in it after two or three times and really thinking about this character that, uh, that got me into it. How about you, sir? I thought it held up really well, actually. In fact, if mm -hmm. we hadn't had to watch it, however many times we had to watch it, to do mm -hmm. what we do, even the techno babble would have passed me by. It was only the second time that I was like, hmm, that feels weird and laggy. Uh, the stuff with mm -hmm. Jordy. It felt like it felt like it dragged it down a tiny bit watching it the second time. And then I guess I only watched it three times this week. Watching mm -hmm. it the third time, that felt really laggy. But uh, saying that, every time I watched it, I was surprised that we were at the end when we got to the end. Mm. It, it actually felt like a really, it felt like a well-paced episode to me. Um, especially the first time I watched it. The first time I watched it, it just flew by. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, you can pick apart little things, I suppose. There are a couple of times I'm like, why is he standing that way? Why is he still looking that way? I wish I were a director <laughs> so mm -hmm. that I could direct somebody differently on that. Of course, I wish I were a director that would let me remake this episode however many years later. Um, yeah, I, th I honestly, I thought the episode held up very well. It's funny to me that you say that the effect was from... The original, uh, I'm sorry, for the motion picture, because I didn't even realize that. It was an interesting design. It was a completely different kind of design. Yeah, I thought this episode held up really well, actually. And I can't say exactly why. I mean, all the points you make seem valid enough to me, and yet uh, I'm not giving it a pass. I'm saying it's actually a pretty good episode. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what about messages, sir? So, I, I feel like this story is about the emotional heart. It's not necessarily about a UC Timmy moment, but, but there's a lot of emotional heart to this episode. The, the tragedy of Gamtu is thinking that it needs to die because of the loss of its crew, that, that purpose is the only reason to keep living. And that purpose is purely defined by that mechanical thing, you know, having the crew there in that symbiotic relationship. Finding purpose rather seems to be the better option. You know, um, it, but like you point out, it, it takes physically finding Tam and Tam physically finding Tin Man to actually realize that uh, that they can do better than where they are. Um, Data gets the message that caring for someone is a or the purpose in life, uh, which was an interesting but all too brief moment for him. 
what I was asking myself, and, and I mentioned it earlier that I said that I was thinking about Star Trek The Motion Picture, is this lingering ambiguity at the end. Did Tam and Tin Man die? Or are we to assume that Tin Man with uh, Tam inside took off someplace else because Tin Man has tremendous power and could have presumably escaped the supernova if it wanted to? Or was this kind of a V'ger thing? So those two lives, Tam and Tin Man, became something else in the spirit of Idik. You know, Tam and Tin Man both found purpose and peace in helping each other, simply being there and understanding each other. So then was that the end? Was that the end of their journey is that they had this moment, but then there's the impending supernova and they're okay with that? Hmm. Or is this something new for them? I, I thought this was the really kind of heady, philosophical, deeply sci-fi stuff about this episode. And not that I've ever been bothered by an ambiguous ending. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I think that's kind of cool when Star Trek does that. Um, but that's why I kept thinking about V'ger. I, I was thinking about the merging of the, uh, the, the V'ger idea and then um, Decker at the end, bringing that humanity to that machine. So I'm kind of left with that. I, I didn't think of uh, I didn't think of a you see to me moment other than the idea of asking ourselves whether or not our our life is defined by purpose or life is defined by living, and then you get to find and make your own purpose, which um, which I think is all right. <laughs> How about you? Well, I mean, first of all, I don't like the ambiguous ending at all. So the way I write it, they now uh, fly around the galaxy solving crime. Oh, okay, perfect. Yeah, all right, I guess we're a, done. Kind, oh, okay, <laughs> kind cool. of in a, or maybe helping people out, sort of like in a Highway to Heaven sort of thing, or, mm, or here's okay. Boma, or, or you know, something, <laughs> something sure. along those lines. Sure, man. Yeah, yeah. Messages. I, I really like the stuff that was being hammered home to uh, to Data. Honestly. I mean, that the idea that, that his being different is okay. He's tried so hard to be human. He mm. keeps trying so hard to be human. And it feels to me like without saying it, uh, Tam was saying, you're fine the way you are. You just need to be fine the way you are. And if you do that, you're going to be fine. And that's sort of, it seems to me that Data, again, at least for this episode, may have come to that realization at the end. He may have had the whole thing that we talked about a few episodes ago where I said, why doesn't Picard just order him to blank? Why doesn't Picard just order him to recognize that he has emotions? Because he'll follow any order that he can. And I you know, thought that he could follow that order, and so why not just order that? It almost feels like a light came on in his head, uh, you know, which being an android, that probably happens all the time. <laughs> but it feels like a metaphorical light may have come on in his head here. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. feels like a metaphorical light may have come on in his head here. And he, you know, at least for, for the duration of this episode, which sadly was only about 20 seconds longer uh, than, yeah. than we have the realization stated, he may actually be cool with who he is and where he is. And that's an important lesson for anybody, I think. I mean, you're not necessarily the best person that you can be, I don't suppose, at any time, especially if you're involved in something nefarious. But... If you're somebody who, who is constantly thinking, why can't I be this? Why can't I be that? Uh, what Sam Elburn is saying is, well, okay, but why can't you be you? Yeah. And have that be yeah. kind of a cool thing. And I'm okay with that. Uh, I'm okay with that idea. Again, it doesn't mean you don't strive. It doesn't mean you don't try to better yourself. But, you know, I, I always thought that one of the coolest things that ever happened <laughs> was that Mr. Rogers used to come on TV every day and tell kids that they were kind of awesome. 
as yeah. they were. Yeah. Didn't mean don't learn to read. Didn't mean don't tie your shoes. Didn't mean don't pick up your stuff. But you're, you're pretty cool. And it honestly felt to me that is very much a you see to me message. Mm-hmm. But uh, it felt to me like that was something that was sort of being uh, offered to data and then offering it to data uh, sort of being offered to everyone. And then there's all the other stuff you were saying about, you know, finding your purpose and all that. Yeah. <laughs> just just that little thing. All right. Uh, it, 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 all of that holds up. All of those messages. Yeah, I would say, I would say definitely. Definitely. I so. like all of those. Yeah. yeah it is. I, I don't know why on that first pass I, I felt like this was kind of – maybe, again, it was just sort of the odd pacing or whatever. But um, it, there's a lot going on with this episode. It's really cool. It's really thoughtful. Um, and like I said, I, I kind of wish that, that there were more. Yeah. I really do. What's funny you know? is somebody is going to write to us and say – how did you guys miss this about the Romulans? And you and I are both going to be like, oh, how did we miss that about the Romulans? <laughs> All right, right. Yeah. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That's trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. And be sure to join us next week for Hollow Pursuits. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Here is how unimportant the Romulans were in this episode. There has been a warbird chasing us the whole time. And I did not even bother telling you. That is how unimportant they were. And transmission. Don't you love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 